Hello everyone, my name is Dr. Fergal Armstrong and welcome to Cracking Addiction. And today we've got with us Dr. Manu Bhatnagar, a addiction psychiatrist, and we'll be discussing in general terms, ADHD, Attention Deficit Hyperkinetic Disorder. Hello Manu, how are you? I'm well, thank you Fergal. Good to see you again. And you. So what is ADHD? <laughs> if you can say that in one minute. <laughs> yeah, easy. Why not? Um, well, look, I think the name itself is pretty telling of the most simple explanation. It is a disorder in which someone's attention um, is deficient. And also there is a variant um, where hyperactivity can be a component. Now, the criteria for this have changed. I think since the 1970s, there's been ongoing controversy about whether this is a real thing. Yes, I was going to say. Or yes. whether it's a social construct. Yeah. Um, I think we now know it is a real thing and we're trying to hone in on what exactly in the brain causes it to happen. The conjecture mm-hmm. still exists about who has it because mm. not everyone can slide themselves under a PET scan uh, for a diagnostic assessment. So we're mm. still in the throes of figuring out exactly how prevalent it is, but there's no doubt that there are some individuals who, from a very young age, display signs of a deficiency in being able to maintain attention in tasks that are not otherwise stimulating. And there are very many patients who will have their functioning and their scope in life limited without right. diagnostic assessment of this condition. So so what you're saying is, in your view, there is no doubt that it is a valid diagnosis with a neuropsychological construct. But can we just go back a step? I mean, you said, you've said a lot of things which we need to tease out, but the first thing that you said was, some people at, in the recent past thought it was a, a social construct. Yeah. Why? What was going on at that time? I think a lot of people would say that all of psychiatry is a social construct. Um, <laughs> we don't have enough time to talk no, about that. <laughs> no. While other disorders can be very disruptive to society yeah. and are clearly evidenced by pathology, schizophrenia and depression can lead to catastrophic outcomes. I think... ADHD um, is never fatal in and of itself, and it can be modulated by the social structure in which the affected individual lives. So strict boundaries, harsh parenting, um, very, very modifiable lifestyle factors can actually mask ADHD because the deficits that exist internally in a person who has ADHD can be controlled by external factors like parents or schools or society. So even though it is a very clear neurobiological diagnosis, you may not find someone is impaired by it because they have the right circumstances of carers and occupation um, that can mitigate it altogether. So, I mean, you can see why some people may question its existence if in the right circumstances it's not noticeable whatsoever, unlike many other conditions. And where do you sit on the spectrum? Well, well put, there is a spectrum. And I, I try mm. not to um, be part of a clique because one of the deficits that I'm encountering in clinical practice is that of an adequate sample size in my clinical practice. And public mental health, which is where the bulk of training is done for junior doctors, doesn't expose you to people who are truly 
uh, affected and really impaired because this is an illness that would lead someone to be hospitalized and then have treatment. So very narrow sense of experience, um, a sense of cynicism brews. And And you've actually said a really interesting point that certainly in Australia, in the the Australian public mental health system, we don't see ADHD, we don't diagnose it, and we don't treat it. This is all really a private diagnosis and management, which I suppose lends itself further to that criticism that it is a social construct. Yeah, yeah. And the people who see ADHD the most are school teachers and mm. um, social workers and people who are seeing the ramifications of someone who cannot pay attention to maintain a job or get good grades despite their potential and have impulsivity issues and hyperactivity issues that stop them from achieving goals that they've set themselves. So social construct, uh, that's a thought because it is really psychosocial consequences that people Mm. deal with, not medical illness. And really, I suppose, you know, when you're thinking about most psychiatric diagnoses, part of the, their diagnostic criteria is dependent on the, on the existence of distress or dysfunction, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. And so, you know, why would it be any different for ADHD? Yeah, well, I mean, that, that's very true. What we find, though, with ADHD is um, when people are in different phases of their life where they do not have those external factors putting in structure and they're left to their own devices of having to prioritize um, tasks that otherwise aren't very stimulating. There are no deadlines to being a parent or juggling many balls at once. Um, They're not able to maintain the level of success functionally that they might have seen in other phases of life. For example, high school or university where the structure is given to you. So some mental illnesses um, happen with the first episode or an episode and they stay with you forever and whether um an outside you know whether you're in school or whether you're having personal problems or not there can all be factors but they're not the only thing that determines if you're affected or not ADHD yeah. can be entirely because you've gone from high school to uni yeah now there's a <laughs> there's a number of things we need to touch on so firstly ADHD, I think you did mention this early on, it was a, it's a developmental, it's a neurodevelopmental diagnosis. What does that mean? I, I think the evidence is very clear that it is something we're now very sure you're born with, with mm. a degree of inheritability and something yeah. that makes you a particular type of neurodivergence. Um, mm. so what that means is when you're born, your brain is set in a particular way. You have a propensity to have... A lifestyle that exhibits an ADHD phenotype, but that doesn't mean you have symptoms of this from day dot. So yeah. anywhere between zero and eighteen, um, kids can start showing signs of ADHD. Um, but we are quite clear that there is no de novo ADHD for an adult. It is very much a, yes. a diagnosis that is made, um, and we say that this is how you've always been. But hey, here now we're calling it what it is and the sad fact of a situation like that is many kids with adhd will not have access to adequate pediatric or psychiatric care to receive that diagnosis and when they become adults uh, and i'm sure we'll talk about the management of adhd um, the ship has well and truly sailed for a lot of people yeah 
Yeah. So really, it's something that you're born with, but the manifestation of that something may vary over time and in between individuals. Yeah, both in terms of impulsivity and hyperactivity. Yeah. They can happen in different phases or together at a later time. Yeah. And and so then you did you did talk about that uh, the, the the concept of prevalence. You know how common is the disease or the disorder, and I suppose that also reflects whether or not one believes in it. Um, yeah. So what what's your what are your thoughts on prevalence of ADHD? So, I mean, the diagnostic criteria are different depending on which country you live in. I think everyone's clear that it's um, a condition that affects people evenly across the board, but we use the DSM in Australia and in the UK Mm. or Europe, they'd use the ICD criteria. They look very similar, but when you apply um, statistical methods to those diagnoses, some estimates say it's about 5 to 7% prevalence if you use Mm. DSM criteria and maybe Mm. 2-3% prevalence if you use ICD criteria. Um, is that in children or adults or both? That's in children. That's in children. That's in children, Um, yeah. Yeah, with the assumption that... um, they'll receive treatment in children as well. I think it gets really messy to figure out a prevalence for adults um, mm. because they don't have the rigorous measures of having parents and school teachers provide feedback yeah. with those rating scales as well. Um, yeah. But that's by the by. I mean, those differences are interesting to note and the social construct issue becomes more prevalent when you think about America and Europe and UK as countries and why there may be a, um, an impetus to diagnose more. The other thing is, I think you may, a lot of people may hear um, in the media or with, amongst the medical community, this phrase, it's both overdiagnosed and underdiagnosed. Mm. And the crux of that is um, those who have, really have ADHD may never come to see a psychiatrist or a pediatrician. And really, we aren't seeing enough people with ADHD and treating them. And by the same token, a lot of people might find the symptoms of ADHD, the inattentiveness mainly, very relatable as we um, are finding, especially post-COVID, many people are having a lot of trouble maintaining attention for various reasons. And they have the resources to see a psychiatrist or have their kids see a pediatrician. And the sort of subjectivity of the diagnostic criteria has made it quite reasonably easy to get a diagnosis if you have enough money. So I think this is where the modern day conjecture of ADHD lies, that um, it is really a bottleneck and a, uh, a financial uh, privilege uh, issue yeah. as opposed Which to... It goes back to the concept of the social construct, doesn't it? You know, if you can afford... The... If you can afford the diagnosis, you can get the diagnosis. Yeah, yeah, and you can't. And also, it. as you were saying, that the, the the differences in the prevalence between DSM five and ICD eleven. Yeah. Do they also reflect social constructs? I, I would say yes and no. So not particularly in. If you look at the criteria, the DSM criteria and the ICD criteria are very similar in terms of um, the wording, but possibly the influence. Um, of the different cultures um, has flown on to who applied this criteria. Right. And I think. Well, so, what are those differences in culture then? Um, if you think about the NHS and the socialism of, of the NHS, um, mm-hmm. you may you may consider that um, 
every health provider is part of a bigger network where there may be more of an impetus to provide non-pharmacological treatment and also work within the community and use the social construct um, for good, uh, for, for benefit. And in America and um, individualistic cultures, there is an impetus to prescribe. And if you look at it from a perspective of what's happening in Australia as well, we're kind of a conduit between the two. We use the DSM criteria, but we still have Medicare to fund um, a lot of care. Mm. From a pure cost point of view, it's much cheaper to prescribe a pill every day than it is to set someone up with behavioural modifications in their school to give their parents Mm. psychoeducation about ADHD and to have lifelong ADHD coaching and therapy. Um, Yeah. Dexamphetamine is about 30 cents a day, whereas therapy Mm. would be much, much more expensive. So the economic argument belies the difference in diagnostic criteria, but not in the wordings, but in how it's applied. Right. So there's more of a financial incentive in the United States to make the diagnosis to access pharmacological interventions rather than to access psychosocial interventions. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes that can maybe be the start of a study which mm. has to prove a point. In America, there are um, a lot of pediatricians and ADHD specialists who truly believe that mm. starting on medications is neuroprotective for young kids. If they have stimulant yeah. medications, that can really alter the life trajectory and make someone more functional by replacing deficits in certain neurochemicals. Whereas in um, European and in, in England, definitely there's um, a culture of using medication as a second-line treatment if the social modifications are not good enough. Yeah, yeah. So moving on from the idea of the, of the differences in prevalence, certainly in children, there, there seems to be a, a difference in prevalence when one compares children with adults and then there are also certain cohorts within the adult community that seem to have higher prevalences than the background general population. So what's your view on, on, on the prevalence between children and adults? And, and does that lead to the idea that ADHD burns itself out at the age of 18? Yeah. That's what I, I've heard. I mean, the, some studies put it up to 50% that yeah. children with ADHD... 50% of them in some studies will no longer have symptoms that are so impairing that they meet the diagnostic criteria. Will yeah. they have periods of inattention? Will they have difficulty in maintaining their hyperactivity? Maybe, but it's not meeting the full criteria. So it does, in those life changes, burn itself out. Or you could yeah. think of it as um, the brain is still developing up until the age of 25 and those deficits that are seen early on are overcome by neuroplasticity and adaptive mechanisms to mm. come up with a more functional way of understanding the world and um, being productive in work or school or otherwise. Um, and so, of course, that, that neuroplasticity, it's important to emphasize, stops at 25. Yeah. But under the age of 25 is almost a passive process secondary to the, the external environment. And if you can get those psychological and psychosocial interventions in early then the brain does change as a result of that exposure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it, that doesn't always mean medication. Um, yeah. 
talking therapies and structural interventions in school, um, some support can really, really affect neuroplasticity to um, break those habits of procrastination and task mm. support, which we'll get to as well. So yeah. those, those shifts can be permanent because you do have mm. this amazing brain up until the age of 25. Yeah. It's quite malleable. So really then... It's, it's, it's not unusual for the to, to understand that the ADHD prevalence diminishes as one approaches adulthood, however which way one chooses to define it, be it 18, be it 25. Yeah. What about if we, if we, look, at, um, if we look at the adult population, though, and, and kind of think about the retrospective diagnosis of, of, of adult ADHD, you know, the, 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 the most important criterion, I suppose, is to actually think about establishing whether or not the symptoms were there yeah. as a child. And also, we, have, we also have to understand that the prevalence of ADHD in certain cohorts of people is higher than background. What would you say to those two comments? Yeah, um, I, I would say that ADHD is one of the most comorbid conditions um, that we know of. So the the flaw in going back in time and having objective evidence to say that someone had ADHD is entirely based on what they present to you. And um, there is some good practice that's suggested by uh, ADHD guidelines and even Medicare in order to achieve that diagnosis, which is for someone to bring in either a family member who can give that objective, uh, well, relatively objective second-hand account of what someone's behaviour and academic performance was like, or yeah school reports from early on um but that's not always possible and even when you do can even when you can do that it's not always successful in making sure that you meet the criteria so a lot of people um get an adhd diagnosis by their self-reports of what they were like in school and at the moment that's enough to get a diagnosis that can get you treated on medications it wasn't the case mm. in the past but um good uh evidence suggests that you need a lot more time than just a clinical interview with a patient. You need to attain that collateral from early on to get that direct retroactive diagnosis of ADHD. The comorbidity of ADHD, though, is bi-directional. I think a lot of people who have ADHD from a very early age, some studies will say 60% have a comorbid anxiety disorder. And it goes the other way as well. Adults with anxiety and trauma will have the same inattention deficits as people who have ADHD. So when you see a cross-section, a snapshot of someone's life and they're demonstrating symptoms of emotional dysregulation, that can mm. look like hyperactivity. When you see mm. them not being able to concentrate because of anxiety or dissociation, yeah. that can look like inattention. Um, mm. But when you have an hour as a psychiatrist and the patient's presenting to you a pitch for why they have ADHD, it all can seem very, very similar. So yeah. it's really, really difficult to be able to go back in time and see what they were like as children. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's. I, I suppose as as one presents older, the more difficult the the, the diagnosis the diagnosis is to actually pin. Um, you know, and I was also reflecting that, however, not, notwithstanding what you've just said, there are certain groups of individuals who do seem to have a higher prevalence of ADHD. And I'm thinking about, for instance, people who, ha who have been incarcerated or who are using substances or who have um, 
learning disabilities. What, what would you think? To, what would you say to that? Yeah, I think there's very good evidence that you know those are the populations that are in the underdiagnosed category, mm. um, and they probably have not had access to a psychiatrist or a pediatrician, but they're very mm. early on felt a need to have that dopaminergic drive to focus and. Perhaps yeah. that was through substances or perhaps that was through the exhilarating nature of a crime and they've mm. fallen into those demographics um, as a consequence of ADHD. But I'd also be cautious of assuming that um, it, it's a one-way relationship because um, personality disorders that can also contribute to people ending up in prison have that very similar nature of dis-functioning. Yeah. Um, yeah. Many, many years of substance use can mm. affect the same brain, uh, same parts of the brain as ADHD. Yeah. So it's almost like an acquired inattention syndrome mm. uh, through a long period of use. But it's um, mm. definitely a, a cause of um, ADHD for someone to end up in those demographics. I think I think that what you say is really uh, important. It's you know we need to be aware of the concept of the acquired inattention, and you know I think. Part of the diagnosis of ADHD is actually the art of excluding the differential diagnosis and or uh, identifying co-occurring conditions. And that's why it's sometimes so difficult. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. On on that sweet note, uh, Manu, we're going to have to wrap it up. We've run out of time, but I really do hope that we can meet again very soon to continue this discussion. So thank you very much for your time today. Thanks, Ben. We'll see you soon. That's all for today, folks. My name is Dr. Fergal Armstrong, and this has been Cracking Addiction.